Hey there, it's Hugo Bown Anderson here, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Today, I'm super excited to be speaking with Jono Whitaker, a data scientist and AI researcher doing research and development with Answer AI. Jono's current focus is on generative AI, flitting between different modalities. He also likes teaching and making courses, having worked with both Hugging Face and Fast AI in these capacities. So Jono recently reminded me how hard everything was 10 years ago. He said, want to install TensorFlow? Good luck. Need data? Perhaps try ImageNet. But now, Hugo, you can use big models from Hugging Face with high-res satellite data and do all of this in a CoLab notebook. Or think ecology and vision models, Hugo. Or medicine and multimodal models. So in this conversation, we talk about generative AI accessibility for all. Where we've come from regarding tooling and accessibility for foundation models, ML and AI. Where we are and where we're going. We'll delve into what the generative AI mindset is in terms of using atomic building blocks and how it evolved from both the data science and ML mindsets. We'll talk about how fast AI democratized access to deep learning, what successes they had, and what was learned, and how we can apply this to generative AI. We'll dive into the skill set and toolkit needed to be an LLM, an AI guru, and much more, all the while grounding our conversation in real-world examples from data science, machine learning, business, and life. So... A little bit of bookkeeping before we jump in. I'd honestly love to hear from you about what resonates, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know is currently on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. It would be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice, and if you like it, write us a review. Also, this episode was recorded as a live stream, so when we occasionally refer to people commenting in the chat, that's what we're on about. We plan to have more such live streams and you can subscribe to our channel to keep up to date. The link's in the show notes. We also did some code sharing during the recording. And although some of it relies on visual cues, much of it can be grokked through the audio, so we left it in. If you want to watch it though, do check out the video. Two more things that may be of interest. First off, I am super stoked to be co-chair of the Data Science, Machine Learning and AI track at the SciPy conference this year. We're extending the CFP to March 5th and I'd like to encourage all of you out there to submit a talk or a workshop proposal. I've included a link in the show notes. Secondly, later this week, I'll be doing a live podcast recording with Amoju Miller, a machine learning guru and founder and CEO of Fimeo, where she's building 21st century dev tooling. In the past, Amoju was technical advisor to the CEO at GitHub, spent time co-leading nonprofit investment in computer science education for Google, and served as a volunteer advisor to the Obama administration's White House Presidential Innovation Fellows. Emoju and I will be talking about escaping generative AI walled gardens and the fact that what we really now need are open tools, open data, provenance, and the ability to build fully reproducible, transparent machine learning workflows instead of closed source, vendor-based APIs and compute becoming a form of gatekeeping. I've included a registration link in the show notes. I'm your host, Hugo Bown Anderson. And welcome to Vanishing Gradients.
Good morning from Sydney, Australia, and good afternoon to you in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, and hello to everyone else around the place. Absolutely. I have my coffee. I don't have any chocolate biscuits, though, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I came prepared. Um, so when our mutual friend Jeremy was on, I heard you guys bantering about the uh, the famous Tim Tams. So I had to sample that famous Australian delicacy. And yeah, <laughs> so we're about ready to do the vanishing gradients. I think so. And I feel <laughs> given certain constraints, it'd be great that if anyone who ever came on the podcast had Tim Tams. So I think I need to sort that out. And actually, in the first ever episode of Vanishing Gradients several years ago, I, I had Jeremy on and we talked about the great Tim Tam scare of the mid-90s in Australia. It was Arnott who made Tim Tams. In, in fact, it was someone, Arnott's needed to do a massive recall. I can't remember what the details were, but someone had poisoned some packets that were out there in an act to demand something from Arnott's and the government at the time, I think. So they, yeah, there were no Tim Tams available for some time for all of us. It was a national crisis. So I'm glad that you have untampered, untainted Tim Tams today. And the classic <laughs> variety as well. The classic. Yeah, I hope not too classic after what you just told me. And I'm glad you told me that after I've eaten most of the packet. So let's jump in, man. I want to hear uh, a, a bit about your background first, but I just want to let everyone know, Jono and I have been speaking a bit recently and Jono reminded me how hard everything was 10 years ago. And I'm the type of person who can bang my head against the wall and forget context. I'm like, why can't we do this right now? But Jono reminded me that 10 years ago, if you want to install TensorFlow, how challenging that would have been. Not necessarily that TensorFlow has changed that much. All jokes aside, if you needed data 10 years ago, maybe you go to ImageNet, but you don't have a, a lot of options. But now with spaces such as Hugging Face, and I don't actually mean such as Hugging Face. I'm like Hugging Face is one of the most incredible Wild Westy spaces of models and data out, out there. You can get your high res satellite data. You said to me, think ecology and and vision models or medicine and multimodal models. So there's a huge kind of range of things we can do now. As we'll get to, part of our job is to stick the pieces together. I think there's probably some Unix philosophy happening in like some abstraction level where you're having you're essentially piping stuff and you can't do everything you want to you've actually got a really nice blog post about um how gpt4 doesn't support function calling and how that would be frustrating but you can actually pipe the results through to gpt 3.5 turbo in order to create your function calls essentially and these are the types of nitty-gritty things i want to get into but at a high level i'd love to start and hear about your background, how you got into deep learning, how you got involved in fast.ai, these types of things, with a view to why accessibility is important to you in particular. Oh, yeah, I'd be glad to do that. I, I also tend to get, you get caught up, you're so normalized by, oh, we have access to this model, and then suddenly there's some little nitty gritty thing. Oh, it's not as good as I was hoping. So I do like the trip down memory lane to say, wait, hang on a minute. If you take a step back and look at what's possible now versus three years ago versus 10 years ago, it's really crazy. It does remind me of two things. Of course, there's the XKCD that you shared with me. That's the one which says when a user takes a photo, the app should check whether they're in a national park. Then the other person says, sure, that's an easy lookup. Give me a few hours and then and check whether the photo is of a bird. And then the person at the computer says, I'll need a research team and five years, right? So these are things that back then, but now seem obvious to us, right? There's also, I can't remember whose it was, but someone has a comedy bit where they talk about being on the plane with the internet for the first time. And five minutes in, the in 
the internet stops working and the person next to them says, why isn't the internet working anymore? As though they've had it their entire life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So to go back to that, that earlier time, yeah, my background, let's see, fresh out of high school, I was a computery person and a technical person. And that was enough for a friend of mine who worked as an ecologist to rope me into some of her projects. She needed someone who was not afraid of the computer. And so pretty quickly, I was thrown into the deep end of like ecological modeling and trying to analyze satellite data. And so this was circa 2013, 2014 on very slow Zimbabwean internet on a very slow laptop. And yeah, my first attempts to do deep learning were small MLPs looking for certain types of pattern in the satellite data, which by the way, you had to carry a hard drive to the university who had a satellite dish they could pull the data from. So it's incredibly painful to get a lot of that working, but very rewarding to be able to see what you could do if you could get some data and start to model it and predict things with certain inputs. Yeah, so that was my like introduction to what I would call now data science. But back then, mm. I didn't even know that's what it was called. It was just wrangling data with code to do something useful. What type um, of code were you writing just out of interest? You're writing Python? or Yeah, mostly Python. And then, yeah, trying to predict, we would get whatever data we could, environmental inputs, and then try and predict like the density of a certain tree species that we'd sampled or, yeah, some image analysis to try and recognize particular patterns from satellite data. Although the, at the end of the day, like I ended up just manually labeling a lot of satellite data because the mm -hmm. tools weren't quite there. Lots of, yeah, just mapping and geographical data analysis stuff. So I kept that up through university, but I studied electrical and computer engineering. So the ecology and the modeling stuff just stayed as a, a bit of a side thing until, yeah, towards the end of my degree, I started doing some work helping to teach a course on data science. And so that was a lot of um, what we now call like traditional data science, logistic regression and random forest, you know, very much focused on the tabular data on business applications. And one of the interesting constraints of that course was that it was for the African Leadership University, which was a, a university based in, I think they have, they're based in a bunch of countries actually. So they have a distributed campus. But one of the requirements for the course then was that we try and use contextual data wherever possible. And that was extremely hard. So that was like, oh, how do I find examples for classification tasks, examples for regression tasks? And if you go and look for that, all the teaching material is NBA players in the US or air conditioning efficiency in France. Finding African data was incredibly tricky to be able to illustrate these concepts. And so after that work, the people that I'd been working with there spun off a company called Zindi, which is a data science competitions platform focused on social good, focused on Africa. And one of the big things there was to foster a local ecosystem of people doing data science and to start building up data sets that people could practice on that didn't feel remote from our lived experience. And I was one of the first people, yeah, helping prepare the data for the competitions and make the baselines, evaluate the submissions, all of the tricky things that come with running a mini Kaggle clone effectively. Um, don't tell the Zindi people I called it that. Yeah, yeah. but <laughs> I also, I do, I'm glad you mentioned that because I've just put the link to Zindi in the chat, I'll put in the show notes as well. But when you said there wasn't necessarily much data that represented where we were and things we were thinking about, my mind did go to Kaggle and think about representation in Kaggle. Even when thinking about what's happening now, which maybe we'll get to with large language models being scraped on web scale data, how much of that is in English language and, and immediately? And how do we think about the use of these models in places like Zimbabwe or South Africa? So I, I think that's in, in, incredibly relevant. I am interested, were you in South, 
So you're from Zimbabwe originally, but studied and worked in South Africa. Part of the work, I started with Cindy and XU Analytics friendly company in South Africa, but I carried on the work from Zimbabwe. So most of my Zindi work was remotely done from Zimbabwe. Okay. Yeah. And it's one of those things that you don't necessarily notice if, if you're not in the art group. If you open up uh, Google Earth Engine or something like that, and the map automatically rotates and zooms into America, like that just makes sense and is nice if you're in San Francisco. But when you're on the exact opposite side of the globe, it's just this kind of, oh, okay, everything's like that. Here's this amazing data set. Oh, it's for the continental U- US and Europe. Here's this amazing data set. Oh, it's like they, they don't have any data for half of the African countries because the surveys weren't done or the stats was too small or whatever. Yeah, so that was definitely like an, an early and repeating frustration. Oh, okay, it would be really cool. That's what, why I liked satellite data. Like satellite, the whole globe is usually imaged. And so then you can get around any any borders or data filtering that someone does and bootstrap your own data. But yeah, that was a lot of the motivation there. And to be clear, this is something, if I recall correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong and you know I'm wrong, but has been historical. I mean, European maps, I think the Mercator projection actually shrinks things that are closer to the equator more generally, but European maps generally shrunk the size of the entire continent of Africa. And I think the argument was so that Europeans thought it wasn't as big as it was, essentially. Yeah, part of that's just, it's, it's always tricky <laughs> to represent everything on a sphere nicely on a flat plane. But more metaphorically, yeah, you're right. There is a lot of focus of, oh, well, in some sense, why would people want that? We should focus on the areas where there's lots of scientists, where there's lots of things. And it's very self-reinforcing because then then you do get more people doing studies on European data because there's more European data. And so then there's more published stuff. Mm. So there's more scientists. So that it all just snowballs. Yeah. So one of the goals of Zindi was to broaden that. Incredible. I just remembered, you can see this You'd, like when you think about this, you can see it everywhere. One example, I used to live, you you might know, listeners might know in New York, and I lived in Harlem for some time on 130th Street. The reason that's relevant is if you look at the subway map on any train or any subway map in the city, and if you look carefully, you'll notice the scale between 10 streets downtown is a lot larger than the scale uptown, Right where there are predominantly African-American, Dominican communities in Morningside, these types of things, but all of it is squashed up there. Now, of course, there's another argument that there's a lot more foot traffic, a lot more stuff happening downtown as well. But you can notice these things once you realize them, I think. Yeah, definitely. So what happened next in your your career? Okay, so working at Zindi, a lot of the early competitions were more like tabular data. As we'd introduced new modalities, that was a really good learning opportunity. I have to learn a bit of NLP because we're doing a a language-based text classification challenge. And then sometime early on, we did a pothole, identifying whether a a dash cam footage of the road had um, potholes or not. Again, nice local data set that we'd managed to source, I think. And there was a guest person presenting a starter notebook at a a kickoff event, and he did it in fast AI. And so that was my introduction to introduction back to deep learning. So the previous time I tried it, it was TensorFlow 1, huge pain, conflicting, couldn't get it working. And then I checked in every now and again, like every year or two, oh, let me try this deep learning thing again. It's still really clunky. The models, it's all tricky. And so then seeing this fast AI notebook, that was like very easy. It ran in Google Colab, which was also, I think, something I was quite new to. Oh, cool. I can get access to GPUs for free. Don't have to mess with accounts. Don't have to use a credit card, which a lot of people don't have. We could just try on a fancy GPU in the cloud, train a model in half an hour. So that was pretty mind-blowing, and that kicked me into diving into that and getting really into I watched the Fast AI course and 
it wasn't too long after that that everyone else in my like consulting organization was like, oh, John is the deep learning guy now, like shoveling all of the like <laughs> deep learning image stuff my way while they focused on the the tabular side. So yeah, I became the deep learning dude for a little while. And then Cindy did a lot of image recognition and classification and regression challenges. So that was fun. Got to pull in some of my old geographical side and do some satellite data competitions. And then yeah, probably around 2020, after a few years of this and that, also doing other random bits of consulting, I said yes to too many projects and then burnt out a little bit during the early days of the COVID lockdown. So my solution to that was take a full break. And then my way to get back into coding was to do creative coding, making pretty visuals and shaders and starting to tinker with this new thing that had just come out, which was Clip. So OpenAI released Dali and Clip. And some people started to figure out, hey, we can use this model to optimize a GAN and steer it with text. And that got me hooked. Yeah, doing AI art, started doing some courses on it. That positioned me later to be ahead of the curve on diffusion models. Started to, yeah, wrote a few courses on those, worked with Jeremy on those, and just snowballed into the generative side of things over the last couple of years. Amazing. Oh, so for those who haven't heard of Jeremy, it's Jeremy Howard who ran with Rachel Thomas. Fast, fast AI and, and, and worked with Jono. And now they've started a new venture together. And maybe you can just tell us a bit about that. And that's something we may dive into later as well. Yeah. So currently, as of the beginning of this year, myself and another group of researchers with Jeremy Howard are working on R&D at Answer.ai. So Answer.ai is a different research lab. We're not working on any immediate products, not chasing any immediate trends. It's more like stepping back and asking the question, what is this AI stuff, this deep learning stuff good for? And treating that like a research question and one that will take a number of years to fully answer and one that might have many different answers. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really fun place to be. Feels like an exciting approach to settle back in for some long haul, yeah, deep research and lots of experimentation. So developing things, putting them out there, trying to figure out and answer this question, what is this AI stuff actually good for? Absolutely. And I'll share um, a link to the launch of Answer.ai to the blog post in the show notes. One thing, I do like the the framing of it, that it positions Answer.ai in a similar way to one of the questions it poses is, we've got all of these cool prototypes, essentially, what apps or what applications or what type of value can it deliver to solve human problems, right? Human challenges and world challenges. And it provides the framework of thinking about electricity, right? So when Faraday discovered electricity, and I didn't quite think of it in these terms, but it wasn't clear what electricity was used for. We take the light bulb and the entire network for, for granted, uh, right? But the point Jeremy makes in the launch post is what became General Electric, started off as the innovation lab, I think, that Edison built in order to figure out like how to apply electricity to generate value for society. And I think... It. One thing I'm interested in, it, I think there's a misconception that all the work is done in the theory and the academic and the creation of electricity, but to think about not only the creation of the light bulb, this is something Eric points out in the second blog post on Answer.ai that I'll link to uh, as well. It isn't, you know, you think the invention of the light bulb, the creation is fascinating after the existence of electricity, but if you think about then, no, we need all these networks of electrical cables, not only in a house, but spread through a society, quote unquote, load balanced in a variety of ways, whatever it may be, right? And figuring out what these principles are for generative AI is not non-obvious at all, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And like a lot of that is is very multi-tiered. So you have to have people tinkering and figuring out the initial ideas. But then you also have to have, like you said, the infrastructure layer, making it easier to try stuff or making it distributing, bringing the costs down that suddenly something becomes viable that wasn't. Yeah, it's not like we solved electricity and lighting and then it was done. It's like it took, what, hundreds of years or hundred years before you start getting like more efficient types of lighting. Then we found LEDs, but it took many more decades to get, oh, we have red LEDs, we have green LEDs. Hey, we finally got blue LEDs. Wait, what? why is that exciting? Oh, now we can do white LEDs and screens and all these other things. Yeah. And people are still innovating today. Oh, now we can make them really small so we can do VR. Um, yeah, and so at every stage, if you can make something cheaper and easier or find a new building block, like a new trick that we can make electricity do, it opens up this whole like big cascade of downstream effects. Yeah, so it's fun to think about what AI is currently in the lots of hobbyist people and lots of niche applications, but what does it take to spread that out? And then what kinds of cool things can you do with that? Totally. And to think what already exists that's necessary for this to actually work. And what I mean is, of course, all the algorithms, all the data, all, all the compute, all of these things are super important. Products that have evolved like elastic compute, right? Like without that, perhaps we couldn't be doing a lot of startups most startups I've worked for probably wouldn't exist without the advent of elastic compute, right? But there's a huge convergence of a lot of different things happening here. Exactly. And I think one of the things that you were excited for us to talk about is to kind of try and picture how that's happening now and even where that's going. Because it is, it does feel like every year, every month at the stage, those bits and pieces get better and easier and fun to slot together. Yep. So I want to jump into thinking about how we can make these tools as accessible as possible. But to set the stage for that, I want to know why accessibility is particularly important to you. I, I think it's important to all of us collectively as a culture, but what part of your story makes you want to come on and have a conversation like this? I think a friend of mine asked me recently, someone I'd worked with on image models, and he said, why are you excited about LLMs? Like, why are you going on to answer and broadening? Isn't it so exciting, this text-to-image space? So, yeah, that's really exciting. It's not that I'm excited about language as a d domain. I'm excited about the kinds of capabilities and applications that it unlocks. Because when you give people new tools, then they're the ones who come up with the really cool stuff to do. And so if we go like maybe back down that history that, I, that we were talking about earlier, you have different like phases that unlock different amounts of capability. And so, the, so an early one might be you have a very specific domain. You gather lots of data for that domain, either tabular data or some one specific task. And you train a model or you, you fit a curve somehow that requires a lot of domain expertise. And then you get something that does one job. One of the things that was so exciting about fast AI and the transfer learning approach was that suddenly it wasn't just like, oh, we train this model one off. It's a person detector. It detects people. It was, hey, we train this model on a bunch of images. It's an image net classifier. But you can adapt it. If you can find a few hundred examples of crows and a few hundred examples of ravens, you can make a crow versus raven classifier. If you can find a few hundred examples of diseased cells versus healthy cells, you can make a disease versus healthy classifier. So it wasn't a fully general AI by any means, but what it was, like a, instead of a single thing, it's now a whole class of things. Mm. And as we saw with the fast AI course and with everything else that was happening at that time, if you give a, a bunch of people who aren't ML PhDs, if you just give a lot of domain specialists access to a tool like that, they come up with really cool things that they can do. Oh, I'm a fraud specialist and I make a picture from the mouse movements, and then I gather a data set of those, and suddenly I've learned a fraud detector. Oh, I do remote sensing, and I gather pictures with and without center pivots or whatever. 
build something there. So it, it opens up a lot more downstream tasks that you as the creator, you don't have to think, oh, I really love a cancer detector. You just say, oh, I've made a good like general pipeline for image classification and some doctor with a cool data set can then go and do the rest. And I think the current phase is almost a step even beyond that in terms of it's not just like one tiny class of things that's unlocked. We're getting to a stage where it's very general building blocks. Yeah, so I'm mostly excited by the very like optimistic, oh, I think as you make these things accessible, as you give people really powerful building blocks, then they can build really cool things. And that tends to have, in my experience, very much a net benefit outcome. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned fast, fast AI because that's one of the paradigms of this type of approach for me. We've mentioned it several times. So maybe you can tell us a bit about fast and then how you worked with them as well. Fast AI is a course that Jeremy and Rachel first created when they noticed this problem, which was that deep learning was very hard. Or it was made to seem very hard. And you had to be in one of a few labs in the group, in the club to, to do it and to do it well. And so they created a library and a course that introduced people to some good techniques, focusing, I think, on this idea of transfer learning, where you learn some general thing first from a large amount of data, and then you adapt that for some specific domain. Yeah, and so that was how I and many others got my start in deep learning proper, was watching Jeremy take us through the first lesson where you build a somewhat close to state-of-the-art image classifier then you dive into what's going on behind the scenes. How does it work? What is this optimization thing that we're doing? And then there's often a, a second part of the course, which is a lot more technical, diving into building a deep learning library from scratch, or like how does one make something like FastAI? How do you do research? And so, yeah, my involvement is very small compared to the legacy of many FastAI courses. But on the most recent one, because I was up to date and making tutorials on stable diffusion, I got in touch with Jeremy and we started basically trying to teach each other and bootstrap our understanding of diffusion models. And the Fast AI course part two, the first one's called Practical Deep Learning for Coders. The second one is informally known as Impractical Deep Learning for Coders. Uh, we just did a really deep dive into yeah, what does it take to build diffusion models from scratch and to do research along the way, test ideas, build up a, a tr an infrastructure for yourself to quickly iterate and experiment. Yeah, so I had a, a lot of fun helping to create that course and seeing that go out into the world. Um, Amazing. And I've, so I've taken the fast AI course many moons ago, but something I really, this speaks to a lot of the points you make. I, I think part of the vision involves four pillars of education, software, research, and community. And it all started with the premise of education is, is my understanding and accessibility and democratization. I think Jeremy and Rachel would have said something along the lines of only a sliver of society is able to even build these models, let alone use them. But the fact that you mentioned that your first interaction was somebody in a notebook using Fast and the fact that a package and framework came out of it as well speaks to the software component, that people working with TensorFlow and PyTorch couldn't really and do what they needed to. Jeremy couldn't teach it in the way he wanted to. So they built a library specifically for the course, but it was production grade and actually beat a lot of other enterprise grade packages in a whole variety of common benchmarks and these types of things as well, right? Yeah. And the software is really cool. And it's great in that it it packages a bunch of good defaults and sensible approaches together. But I think also it's not just education like here's how to do it or here's how to do it with our library. I think the the more more interesting part of that education was just that this is possible at all. Like yep. telling a whole bunch of new people, you can do this. Look how easy this it's it's five lines of code. And then unpacking it from there. Yeah, so it's interesting to think about. I think 
it was very powerful for the, the fast AI library and I'm sure some people still use that. But what was really key was showing a lot of people like, oh, you can do this kind of stuff. You can build this. Yeah. And also to the point that we we're making earlier about generative AI, which we'll get to kind of the connecting all these different things. I do remember in the first one of them, you know, getting to an aha moment or a moment of delight as soon as possible. I think when I did the course, the first lesson, it was, as you said, a computer vision app, but I think you built it in a notebook and then you could use voila at that point to turn it into a little app. That may not be production grade or whatever that means, anything along those lines, but it let you know in 60 minutes that you could actually build something that people could use. And I think the power of that is incredible. And the Colab notebook for that is actually quite quite amazing as well. And I kind of want to get, I don't, we don't necessarily need to get into too technical weeds here, but I, I do want to know when thinking about accessibility at fast, like how my contrarian question, I suppose, is can a domain expert really do this with like what happens when they come up against like dependency tr trees that they need to resolve and stuff like that? Or does Colab help us abstract over all of that as much as it can and then you go into forums and figure it out yeah that's still it's still a very unsolved thing and it's still i think the joke with fast ai was that eventually the 20 lines of code to five lines of code would shrink down to, to no code or to not needing to be someone who's already got a year of experience with python and knows how to set up a computer and figure out how to access a gpu mm. and yeah those are still issues and i think if you play today especially if you're trying to chase like the current what's come out this month, we haven't solved the issue of being able to install something that runs fast on a GPU on an arbitrary computer. Like you, you will still hit, I this week had to figure out NVIDIA container toolkit, not playing nicely with something else, or there are all these issues. But as you say, something like Colab goes a long way. Something like Replit is another platform that's trying to make it so that you as a learner have to understand as few components at a time as possible. Right, So if I'm learning about code, I'm just focusing on the code. I'm not worrying about package dependency management. I'm not worrying mm -hmm. about bandwidth. Things like model hosting and that kind of thing. Hugging Face has done really well. But yeah, it's still. I think there's still some progress to be made there. So when I say accessibility is great, it is really great compared to historically. Yeah, I think there's definitely a long way to go before, like you say, a domain expert with no coding expertise could take full advantage of these models, for example. So I'd, when we first spoke, I think I mentioned I'd been We've been doing stuff with stable video diffusion and getting that from hugging face to some form of production, really like a lot of stuff. I wouldn't say stable diffusion is necessarily only a research project. I feel like it's somewhere between research and production. But then I said I wasn't going to talk, but then maybe it takes three to six months people, domain experts to start really interacting with it. But before we get into that, I do, I am interested in thinking a bit more about deep learning before jumping into generative AI and what type of domain experts you saw at fast AI who were able to do things either from, I don't know whether one's in the medical space or planning or whatever it is, what were the most exciting ones there or some of the exciting ones that so. So I may be not the ideal person to ask because I was just, I participated once or twice. I don't want to, I don't know. So these are all the things we saw at fast AI. My, my involvement there is pretty recent, but across the consulting I did and the work I did at Zindi, Maybe for me personally, a lot of things that were uh, conservation and ecology related mm. always got me very excited. I've seen work, for example, like doing environmental monitoring with audio. So you put a, a microphone out in the forest. You don't have to have someone scrubbing through days and days of audio to find things. You can use models to tag bird calls or 
illegal logging noises or elephant communications, that kind of thing. Analyze huge data sets like that automatically. Yeah, we did some working with anything where you need vast amounts of data that needs to be surveyed, like camera trap data is a classic one. The general pattern was there. And anytime I saw domain experts who were like, oh, hey, hang on, you're doing image to label. And I have a bunch of images of elephant ears. Could we like find a way to identify individuals? Anytime there was that crossover where they realized, oh, this pattern that you've shown how to apply, I have a task that fits that pattern. I have histology images, or I have, if it's tabular data, I have all these sensor readings from my jet engines that I've been running. Anytime there was that like, aha moment, oh, you, the pattern you've shown me fits, then they could start to figure out a way to make those two mesh together. And what's exciting now is that the type of pattern is getting a lot more broad. So if you look at a, a language model for, for one example of today's generative AI, it's not just, oh, it can summarize text. And we can find things that fit the summarized text pattern that's really useful. But it, no, it's, oh, you can tell it what pattern it should be. And it takes in somewhat arbitrary text and it spits out somewhat arbitrary text with a lot of quote unquote intelligence in the middle there. And so if you need something that takes in text and classifies, you can just say, you are a classifier. Here are the possible labels. If you need something that takes in text and makes it more formal, you just say, make this text more formal. And so now you have a building block that isn't just one pattern. It's like the pattern is defined by basically just telling it what to do in natural language. And so that opens up a whole big space of new applications where you don't have to say, oh, it's an image to one of five possible labels that I can do. It's, oh, it's text to some other text that I can do, <laughs> or it's text and images to text or images or audio. Yeah, that really starts to broaden the sphere where I'm sure there's people in all sorts of domains saying, oh, I have to do legal briefing to topics. That's text to text. That's something maybe you could ask one of these giant models to do. Yeah, so that's very exciting in that way. Yeah, and I do think that's a paradigm shift that you and I have discussed before. Essentially, you can frame it and you have framed it as there's a data science mindset, which is, among other things, figuring out useful features for predictions. There's a deep learning mindset, which is how can I express what I want in terms of some loss function to optimize? And then there's now the generative AI mindset, which is combining atomic units, essentially, and figuring out how to build the application you want due to those. And I do want to get into the generative AI mindset, which you've just hinted at. I do want to know that before that, though, deep learning and, and data science, with the domain experts you've worked with and seen, do they, in terms of making these tools accessible to them, do they still need you or are they able to do most of the work themselves? And if so, what type of skills do they need? I presume scientific thinking of some sort, for some definition of scientific thinking, understanding certain things about data generating processes, whatever it may be. I'm not necessarily thinking like Borel sets mm. and whatever and Poisson distributions, but understanding, and that comes from domain expertise. Do they need hacker skills as well? Do, like what type of computational skills do they need? But yeah, that was, I've broken the golden rule of interviewing, which is asking a cloud of questions. But I think that <laughs> will generate a bunch of ideas for you that, that could be useful. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. So I think th there's been this promise since the days of AutoML and all of these like one-click, we do all the hard stats and fit a predictor thing which is that if you just bring your data, we can do the, the deep learning bit or we can do the tabular data modeling bit. We'll figure out the best algorithm and we'll pick the best features and we'll do all of the magic for you. And in my experience, it's never quite worked. You can't take someone who's afraid of using 
a computer and then force them to use something new like that. You can make it as easy as possible. And if it's a well-defined set of tasks, then there's great tools that do that. So for example, if you're doing like image annotation in a slide, there's really good software now that says, okay, I understand that you're a biologist who didn't take any stats in R courses. You never coded. That's okay. Draw the boxes like this until you have enough. Add the class labels like this and then push train and it'll do it for you. Mm. Yes, yeah, so for a lot of those tasks, it does still it's very helpful to have an understanding of what's going on, even if it's not at a deep level. So this model is looking at these different input features and it's building a tree of yes or no thresholds to try and give me the final answer. Is this class one or class two? If you have that kind of rough level understanding, which as we've seen with courses like FastAI, it's it's not that hard to get to, but it does require like a lot of engagement and it does really help to have a rough mental model for anyone who's wanting to use that. Instead of having a mental model, you can have a deep learning person who joins you. And I love working with domain specialists for this reason is I can, I have a model of what kinds of things we can train, what kinds of data we might need. They have a deep model of what questions they could ask and what's even possible. Like they've manually annotated lots of data so they know what tasks are doable. So you can have that collaboration. But yeah, historically, at least it's been either, if you're a domain specialist, you have to engage enough to have oh, I can run the tools, I can copy and paste the example code, I need some familiarity there, or you need an in-between, a person who can go and write the code. Mm, great. That's super, super helpful to reason through this stuff. It's interesting to think, so then, sorry, I know you didn't want to dive into the, the generative side just yet. No, but... let's do No, I'm ready. I can't wait anymore. <laughs> so so the, the language there was, oh, I need to run scikit-learn, or I need to put a, make a PyTorch data loader with my images. That's the kind of tricky stuff. The language that you interface with something like GPT-4 today is, is is actual human text. It's like English language. It's not code language or anything else. And so that's one thing that's quite exciting to me is that gap that you needed. The gap was really high when it was like install TensorFlow and compile this model graph and make all your data in the right format. It was a little lower when it was like, oh, if you can get it into a fast AI data loader, everything else is gravy. It's now like, oh, if you can like copy and paste your data into the text box <laughs> or put your image up and then ask a question in natural language, you can start to experiment without a go-between who, who can code. And almost at the stage where not only that, but the, you can then say, could you code that for me to ChatGPT or Gemini Ultra or whatever, and then copy and paste the code into somewhere and just click run and not have to have that mental model. I don't think we're quite there yet. It really helps to be able to code a little bit and be able to understand but it feels tantalizingly close to eliminating the specialist middleman where you can just say, here's my problem, solve it. Yeah, and I do part of the provocateur or troll, and I mean troll as a compliment, like in the like the Shakespearean jester version of the troll who tries to speak truth to power. The troll in me or the provocateur or contrarian does wonder, this generative AI stuff, seems so powerful immediately. It's like, wow, oh, wow, I can get this done immediately. And then it, after a while, it's okay, how do I actually embed this in a production grade app? And then it's like, oh, wait, how? And I know that's a huge, I hear Jeremy actually being like, that's a different question, Hugo. But seriously, this is what we want to do with these things. And it's, oh, how do I deal with relevancy? And then do I, now I have to maybe fine tune or do rag or something. And then these are hallucinations. How do I deal with that? So I, I suppose if we're thinking about wow factor or impressive as a function of time it's been inversion of traditional software in a lot of ways like traditional software is i build this small thing that does nothing like i'm doing this mvp and then now i need to introduce unit tests and now and so 
as a function of time. It starts off small and not really demonstrating much, and then over a relatively a not insignificant amount of time, you get more and more value. Whereas generative AI at the moment could seem to invert this thing, if that makes sense. Or I can't do function calls with GPT-4. Or... <laughs> yeah, you get the big flashy demo right up front and then you hit yep. all of those little road bumps. Yeah, part of that to me is just that, oh, we still have work to do. And I think one of the goals at Answer is still the same as fast AI, is to try and make this stuff more accessible. Yep. And you've just outlined there a lot of the outstanding problems is saying, oh, I've got something that works once in my chat GPT, like interactive chat. How do I turn that into something that I can... I think the GPT builder from OpenAI, it's quirky and early demo, but that does show a direction that people are thinking, right? And so there you effectively do get a user-facing app. You haven't had to install Android Studio or some development environment or set up a server anywhere. You've just said, this is what you should do. This is what your logo should look like. Here are some documents you can access. Push go. Yeah, so it feels like there's a lot of work to do for that vision to be like perfectly realized and for every dependency issue and so on to go out. But in the meantime, yeah, I feel like we're getting there slowly but surely. Absolutely. And I, I do think my critique is absolutely nonsense in another way as well that to your, yeah, the GPT builder, whatever in a lot of ways compared to the initial release of ChatGPT, but what are our expectations with everything that comes out every week? Do we expect everything to, I compare it, it a few years ago, James Cameron made a movie. That's actually a bad example. The Coen, So let's take a Coen Brothers movie that wasn't the best. And a lot of my friends complained about it. And I was like, but you got to remember, not everything's going to be No Country for Old Man or Big Lebowski or Fargo, right? And if you look at historical movies of directors you love, you only remember the really good ones and not all the failure modes in, in, in the middle, right? So we're living through this in real time. I don't know what a collection of the... I don't know if you all would be interested in thinking about this, of all the failed applications of electricity from the Innovation Lab and General Electric to allay people's concerns about what we're experiencing now. But I am interested in, you've got a wonderful blog post, and I think this help will be a nice entry into you working more on generative AI. You've got a great blog post on, which I'll include in the show notes, on why you got into LLMs and why you didn't initially as well, as someone who worked a lot in, in, in deep learning. So maybe you can tell us a bit about that journey and then all the great things happening now. Yeah, I guess my initial skepticism was there's a number of things. There's a lot of hype and I'm, I tend to run in the opposite direction if I see a crowd of people going one way. And also there was this vague impression that I got as someone who's, I've always used language models here and there, not always, I've dabbled with NLP tasks in consulting and in, in the side, but it's not interested me like some of the other applications for my own interests. I don't personally have to process lots of text or summarize emails or anything like that. And then there was this perception that, oh, you have to be a massive lab to be doing any cool new research. This, this field is like saturated with people doing stuff and also like hard to, to push the boundaries on. What changed that was partly just starting to look at things and see how janky and badly done a lot of parts are and how much low-hanging fruit there is still for improvements and starting to see also beyond the immediate, everyone makes everyone's currently making chatbots. So chatbot for this, chatbot for that. It's like, oh, that's really cool. And I don't want to lose track of the historical, we couldn't do that before and now we can, that's amazing. But start to see actually there are lots of other applications too and there's lots of improvements that you can make and there's lots of other things that you can use these to enable. So that was, yeah, that was my kind of turnaround was starting to look deeply in, see lots of places where you could make a difference, 
lots of places where you could still do meaningful experiments at a small scale. And yeah, that was like, okay, cool. I think I could get into this and start building. Right. So I suppose with everything you've seen with over the past decade with data science accessibility, deep learning accessibility as well, as we've talked about quite a bit, how are we going to achieve similar goals for generative AI? I think part of it is the same thing. So we spoke about just making people aware even that things are possible. I think there's a goal of communication that's on the shoulders of people who are making this kind of technology to communicate to people that, yeah, this is what you can do with it, some ideas and how to get started. And so I think that's maybe going to be a fun thing to watch over the next little while because it's getting so easy to fire up ChatGPT and try it on something new or to fire up whatever the downstream equivalent is that can do more and take in more inputs and so on. Is to tell people like, hey, hey, did you know you can make a custom thing like that? And by the way, did you know that you can also take text and turn it into images? Like we, we kind of assume that's everyone knows about that because everyone in our little circle has known about that since the DALI 1 paper several years ago. But like for most people, that's like, wait, what? Like the DALI Imogen stable diffusion thing is, oh, maybe I saw a video about that a while ago. It's like completely new. And so I think making people aware of those capabilities. And there's a lot, there's a lot of capabilities now. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. I I have the ChatGPT app on my phone. A lot of people don't know that I can walk around talking to ChatGPT and interact with Dali 3 while doing so, like generate images while I'm walking down the street, essentially, which is right. pretty wild, actually. Yeah, and even if you're someone who's like a maybe like a legacy programmer, you're not chasing the trends, you just work. It, going to someone and saying, hey, and you're thinking of what, you might work on your spare time next. Did you know that you can take text and, sorry, you can take speech and turn it into text. You can take text and turn it into speech that sounds like a human. And you can do this really fast. Yep. You can take text and turn it into other text and process it with intelligence just by saying what the transformation should be. You can also generate any image you want from a description. And you can take in any image, get a description of that or ask questions about that. And if someone clicks on it, you can select what they've intended to select with like a shocking degree of accuracy, much better than someone manually going in Photoshop. Like you just start listing these capabilities. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, that's like, wait, okay, no, but that must be really hard. And so <laughs> it's mostly a, like a communication thing. And I think that's why, yeah, we do podcasts. We talk about these things. We publish about these things. Like, yeah, you guys know there's a lot of stuff, a lot of building blocks we can use. And every month those building blocks get more accurate and better and faster and cheaper and easier. So if you can get something working now, it's just going to keep going. For sure. And it is very early days. And you like, I'm glad you mentioned about the reason for being a podcast like this. It reminded my, like the first podcast I ever did, I was creating a lot of online courses in, in Python in particular at, at, at the time. And I realized in those courses, we were teaching ways of thinking. We were teaching APIs as well and computational paradigms, abstraction layers, all of these types of things. But something we weren't teaching was really what happens on the ground in the industry and how people think, how people need to think, how to get jobs, all of these types of things. So I think opening up long format conversations, particularly in an era of TikTok, still not clear for me to, to me how to repurpose podcasts like this for TikTok, which don't necessarily, you need to, that kind of balance the trade-off between still being engaging, but actually delivering useful information as well. And it's not clear to me what happens to a civilization when we have an attention span of 15 15 seconds, but 
Someone just, Kubito, just mentioned in the YouTube chat, my buddy at work today was stuck on a Neo4j error and had no idea he could ask ChatGPT. Particularly, to to your point, that there's pu public awareness happening here. I'm glad Kubito mentioned this because I, I wasn't necessarily planning on talking about this, but I do think some of the most value we've seen LLMs deliver is as coding assistance, to be honest. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that, whether you use Copilot-esque type, type things in, in, in your work. Yeah, yeah, all the time. I mean, there's some things that they're less good at, and I think maybe we can get into later, like when you talk about the limitations of these models, the more central and common your task is, the better they're going to be, and the more obscure and weird and, and out there your task is, the, the less useful they're going to be. So for a common language and a, a common type of error, for example, you'll get a very fantastic, helpful response. If you're doing research code with a new version of a library that just came out or a new idea that is not well-documented, then maybe you'll have less use. But maybe, yeah, I do heavily rely on them for coding. I think we spoke about maybe doing some, well, you talk, called it a live demo in the yeah. show announcements, but I chickened out and <laughs> did the actual coding beforehand. But I can show what I did and talk about how I basically wrote none of that. I, I used ChatGPT or copilot to to fill in the blanks amazing do you, do you want to jump into that now or save it for the end maybe we can jump to that now and then we can talk yeah. about like how where this approach what its current limitations are and sounds perfect so why don't you share your screen and we'll we'll jump in for context for this so we've been talking planning the show and i one of the things that i've been saying was yeah we have all these building blocks now you can glue them together it's really amazing there's all these things you can do and so i thought to, to rather than just talking about that oh cool it's pretty easy to hand wave some of these things. I should try a few demos. So yesterday, I spent maybe an hour total, a couple of little demos. And so the first one was, I thought, okay, I'd like to take an image as like a desktop wallpaper. And it might be fun to use one of these models that can do both vision and text to generate like a silly quote or something like that to go with the image. And so the first thing I did was I went to ChatGPT and I said, I want to pull a random high quality photo from Unsplash in Python. Can you help? And the reason I went there is because my intuition was this is something people have done before. It seems likely that there's some way to access that. I could probably go to Unsplash and find their documentation and see if there's an API, maybe check Flickr as well. But straight away, it said, yeah, you'll need to go and sign up for an account and get an API key. And then it gave me this code, which checks if there's a valid response. If so, you get a URL. If not, prints out a failure message. I didn't write this. Copied and pasted from it, signed up like I was told to, and bang, we get a picture back. Cool. That's block one, right? And so you're still doing programming. You're still breaking the overall task into smaller tasks. Yeah. And just to be clear, you, that request you made in the ChatGPT app, or did you use the API to... This in just the ChatGPT like, yeah. web app? Fantastic. Yeah. It's, it seemed like it. This kind of and task... anyone can do that. Anyone can do that. Yeah. And in fact, it'll give you a button to to run that on Replit or something like that. So you don't even have to worry about setting up your local environment. Actually, it's Gemini that does the open in Replit. But you can copy and paste into something that lets you run Python or something that lets you run JavaScript, whatever the like environment that you're most tangentially aware of is. And then, yeah, I didn't ask it for the full app that it was in my head, although I could have tried in this case. But thinking, what are the component blocks that maybe are tasks or types of tasks that people would have done before? Step one was getting a photo. Step two is generating the text or step three is pasting it on. So for step two, I went to the OpenAI's docs. They have nice little quick start recipes. 
So in this case, I didn't have to ask ChatGPT. They have examples that I can just copy and paste. And they have one that is putting in a question and a, a URL for an, an image. So again, it takes knowing that exists, right? You have to have seen that they have a vision API. They have models that can take in both images and text. Mm -hmm. Someone has to make you aware of that's existence. But once you know that it's there, you can ask some assistant to go and Google that, or you can go find it yourself and fudging it together. And if I didn't know Python really well, maybe I pass this to the same conversation about the previous step and say, can you integrate this too? Sure, you'll need to install OpenAI, type pip install OpenAI. It can guide you through those little bits there. Okay, and then we get a response that suggests exactly what I asked for, which in this case was a motivational quote to go with the image. We get a motivational quote. And then part three, like I want to stack these two things on top of each other. This is no, there's no AI model required here to do the actual task, but it does need code, which historically would have been like, oh, now you need to learn Python. Please give me code to do this. I have a text variable that has the text. I have an image loaded. It should put the text on the top. There we go. It's not an amazing font. It's not the right size. <laughs> There's all things you could iterate on. But this took, yeah, I think 11 minutes. <laughs> I said it's not much going and watched a YouTube video while ChatGPT wrote the code or Copilot wrote the code. So just to recap yeah. for those listening and not watching, I think we, we can do this. You, you spoke with ChatGPT in order to get an image from it was Unsplash or whatever it was, then mm -hmm. to create text to put on top, then to overlay the text on the image all in 11 minutes. And it gave you the code to do that. Right. And if it's like the, the this is an, an easy project on the scale of complexity but i feel like if you weren't sure you could first spend some time asking what the best way to do this might be suggest some libraries i could use for showing the images and for overlaying text you could brainstorm and figure out what those comp component pieces needed to be mm. but yeah it's quite fun to conceptualize the whole thing and then realize if a block is like a general task image to image or image to text or text to text that I can use some model for, great, that fills in that piece. And then everything else around that, the fluff, the infrastructure, if I can break it into somewhat simple pieces, I can then ask in natural language and get back the equivalent code and without too much fiddling, stack it all together. Amazing. Um, so I can show a second example if that seems yeah, useful. Yeah, please do. Right, so this is one we were talking about what good simple demos would be. I was chatting with offering Jeremy Howard again and he said, oh, one thing is when we record these long videos, it would be nice to get the chapter headings automatically because for a two-hour video, you have to listen through the whole thing. I don't like the sound of my voice. Okay, that seems like another nice demo. So the overall task is I want to put in a URL and I want to get back a summary and a YouTube-compatible chapter heading list to put in the description. And so for this one, there's several parts. I need to get the video. I need to get the audio from that. I need to get the text from that audio. And then I need to process that text somehow. Fortunately, I know that people like to take audio and turn it into text and that OpenAI have a model called Whisper that's open source. You can run it locally or you can find a gazillion variants and different implementations online. So the audio to text part, I know there's a building block for that. For the URL to audio part, I assume people have ways to programmatically download from YouTube. So I Google YouTube transcript or whatever and there was a hugging face space which is nice because that's a demo that you can see the code um could just as easily have asked gpt4 hey show me how to use pytube to download a video into audio and so yeah again i don't think any of this code i wrote other than 
checking things at each step. One approach that I quite like is you'll notice this isn't in a, so for those listening, I'm in a notebook. And what that means is that when I have a series of steps like this that we're talking about, I can inspect the intermediate parts. And I think this is the kind of programming that's even more useful in these, I'm gluing bits together from different places, style situations. You're not having to run the whole thing over and over again, download the video each time. It's more, can I solve one building block? Okay, I'm able to get the audio from the video, right? I've downloaded some MP3 file. And I will, I, I, I do think one of the reasons notebooks are almost not essential, but can be fundamental in this type of work is if we recall, computational notebooks came from the idea of scientific notebooks, right? Of people like biologists, like doing PCR gels or whatever, and doing figures and plotting them in a notebook and writing notes and writing their results, right? And mm. it comes down to, but there's a huge amount of experimentation involved and in this case you're not just building software that needs to pass a specific set of unit tests and all of that you're actually actively experimenting generating data using data so having a notebook scenario in which you can explore all your experiments is essential i think it is yeah yeah and that i think it's a slightly different kind of programming and it's definitely not the same as deep learning or data science or old school programming it's very much yeah, exploratory and kit bashing these components and also then letting the AI fill in some of those components for you. Mm. So an example here, I have the audio transcribed from Whisper and it spits it out just as a long string of text. It also has some big dictionary of results that includes timestamps and seconds. And so I'm annoyed that I erased it, but what I did was I copied and pasted what the dictionary looked like. Mm -hmm. And then I made that into a comment and I said, Let's convert this to text with timestamps. And then I could hit tab because Copilot, which is also GPT behind the scenes, some big language model, just suggested the necessary code. And so again, that should probably have been maybe a copy and paste back and forth if I wanted to use the, the web interface with the different model. But for each of these steps, I can try that out and then I can print out the result and I can see, oh, okay, this is exactly what I was envisioning. Or no, that's not quite right. I need to convert the seconds into to hours, add a comment, hit tab, <laughs> get a few lines of code back, break it down and test each piece. And then once you have it as text, oh, we just talked about it. these language models are arbitrary text to text transformers. Cool, you're an AI assistant that helps write video descriptions. Follow this format and you send it off following some example and you get back exactly what was asked for, hopefully. Maybe not quite, maybe there's refinements. Maybe you can ask it to say, oh, please use smaller sentences or something like that. But yeah, none of this is none of this feels like rocket science. As long as you know that there's these pieces around. I know that there's yeah. APIs I can send some text to and get back a response from a chat model. I know that there's things I can send some audio to and get back a transcription. Yeah. Amazing. So I'm really interested in a lot of the stuff you just showed is pretty bleeding edge. Mm -hmm. Um also liable to change. I'm and this is <clears throat> I know sometimes I get a bit sociological or philosophical, but we have, without really talking about as a society, moved into an age where software is constantly up updated as opposed to products of our parents' generation because of the ability to push changes so rapidly. So GPT, it may have di different affordances on one day to the next. I'm interested in how people building these things can think about that. Also, I'm interested in kind of the curve of adoption, as we said before, like a punter 
who may be a domain expert and not know a lot about coding may not be able to may not have been able to use stable video diffusion last October. You and I could mm-hmm. November or December, whichever uh, Q4 is a, a total blur last year. But now there are tools coming out which allow people to do that type of thing. So um, yeah, how do you think about the kind of changing of products and then when people can adopt them as well? So I think the change, often it's good, right? So if, for example, I'd wanted word level timestamps, I couldn't get that from Whisper yesterday and I can today because they updated their models to now have a, a an option for that. And so it's frustrating if you want everything to stay rock solid. And I think that's just a reality of trying to chase things that are coming out now. But one thing that's been fun to watch is that the interval from it's cutting edge and very hard to install and, and impossible to use. It used to be like, oh, maybe several years later, there's finally a nice sentence embeddings package. And then it was like, oh, several months later, everyone's very frustrated because it's not perfect. But it, yeah, it seems like that pipeline is shrinking. And so if you're trying to use things that you saw, the paper came out yesterday. Yeah, it might be some research code and un- unspecified dependencies that's a little tricky to get going. But it seems like it's taking less and less time, especially for stuff that's provably useful, for there to be a company offering that as a service or an easy installable package that does everything for you. So yeah, you don't have to clone GitHub repositories and copy and paste models from Google Drive to run Clip. There's the Open Clip project that has a very simple API. You don't have to yeah, worry too much about different model formats or anything. There's usually five lines of code on a given model's model card that says, here's how to use this with transformers. Just make sure you've got an up-to-date. Yeah, so it seems like that interval is shrinking, but it's still... If you're comfortable doing all of that stuff, you can be right at the bleeding edge. And if not, you're lagging, but it feels like even that lag is is like a month or two. Really, <laughs> it's not that bad. And once that does become accessible, it very quickly also continues to improve. So you get text-to-speech, but it's not that great if you're using open source and it's a little slow. And then two weeks later, someone's written some amazing distilled version that's a lot smaller and faster. And also it's easy to install and it doesn't need NVIDIA anymore. <laughs> it just does keep, it seems like it keeps then bouncing around and having the rough edges knocked off so much it seems like there's so much opportunity for us to build so many cool things and one 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 that we spoke about recently and i'll include a link in the show notes but rachel thomas from fast recently wrote a post about immunology work and i can't quite remember the details but i, I think part of the suggestion was there are 15, 16 million abstracts on, on on PubMed that you could put into a large language model that could actually be incredibly useful. So I'm just wondering either your thoughts on that or what other spaces you, you, you see the most op- opportunity being leveraged here. That's a fantastic example. I'd encourage people to go read her post, but the gist of the one example that she shared there, she talked about lots of things and how the space as a whole is interesting. But one example was you have these different interactions, like this cell type and this cytokine in this environment, the pairs or triplets of features. And so if you go look at a paper, and like you said, there's millions of papers, too many for someone to go through manually, they might say, oh, in this model, we test this thing and it interacts in this way. And that data would previously be inaccessible unless someone went through manually and tagged it. But it's also not that hard to imagine a a language model looking at the abstract and then being given a format and saying, does this mention any types of protein interactions? If so, what is the protein? What is the model? What is the, whatever the like technicalities are? 
And you can then just set that running, run it on all 16 million abstracts, and then come back to a nice structured data set. Sure, you've got to make sure that there's no mistakes and, and do your due diligence, but it enables you to do this kind of statistics or like analysis on a huge set of data that previously, if you wanted to do that project, your undergrads are volunteering every year for decades to like slowly build up your database and you're doing intermediate reports all the time. Now it's, oh, yeah, I can go for lunch, have it process all of those documents to look for the one kind of thing that I want. Um, yeah, so that's a very exciting and a, like a very perfect example of the kind of thing that seems really well suited to what we can do at the moment. So I think this is actually a nice moment to delve a bit deeper into a few things that we mentioned earlier with respect to two challenges with LLMs are getting relevant, accurate. It's actually three, relevant, accurate, and correct. Accurate and correct probably are the same. So relevant and accurate information. When we think about relevancy here, that's one challenge, but actually hallucinations are an, an, another, right? And it seems like with something like immunology, getting not hallucinations is actually quite, or getting accurate. I know people have different visions of what hallucinations actually are. So when thinking about that is, so you want to get something that's accurate, correct? Perhaps you want to be able to get correct references as well. And this is an issue I've had with ChatGBT, for example, is I'll ask it for references and it'll give me 10 references that look like real articles and like only three of them actually exist. And I'm like, you've really tricked both of us, to be honest. So in this right. case, is something like you could fine tune on this or you could use RAG, for example. And RAG helps you think about lineage and where information is coming from. So is RAG something you'd prefer to use in a situation like this? or? Yeah, I think that's a part of it. So this is where we talked about having a mental model for the kinds of things that happen. This is where I think that sort of thing is useful to say, okay, I have these things, they're general text-to-text -text transforms that are really good at matching patterns. And that... Some people say, oh, it's just pattern matching. It's not like just, this has to be very specific already in the training data. It's more general than that, right? You could teach it something in one language and it might generalize to another language. So it's like this very fuzzy conceptual pattern or graph matching. But they're also, there's some randomness. They produce like plausible looking text, but it might not be perfectly accurate. There might be hallucinations. And so expecting that to do a perfect job every time and then relying on that is setting yourself up for problems because approximate matching, it's easily fooled, it does make mistakes, etc. But you can also start to say, okay, can I work around that? And you mentioned the retrieval part. That's one way that people try and work around this. This is to say, oh, if I go and fetch a relevant paper and put that in the same context as this conversation, hopefully that can ground the language model a bit. If you ask it for references, they don't exist. Okay, that's a problem. But you can also start to check. Okay, so that example there, we're going to go process an abstract and then try and make a data set out of it. Step one is go through all 16 million abstracts in PubMed and I get back 20,000 papers that it thinks are relevant and it's annotations from those. So straight away, I don't have to read 16 million papers. I have to read 20,000 if I want to perfectly validate this. But then I can also go, I can say, okay, let me go ask a second LLM, like here's the abstract, here's the extracted data. Do you agree this is correct? And I can flag ones that might be incorrect, right? So that could flag for manual review. You can also do things like, oh, it mentions these three things as interacting. Do those three words exist in that document, right? And if so, let me pull out the sentences that mention those words that it thinks are most relevant. And then now I have something I can check where it just says, this interacts with that. We study in, in mice models and in human models. We notice that it, it has this effect. 
Mm-hmm. And so I can review just those three things instead of having to read the whole PDF. So you can work around the limitations by also using these tools more creatively than just, oh, I threw in all my text and I hoped for the right answer. It's, no, okay, I'm going to structure things right. Like you say, I'll retrieve maybe relevant information. Then I'll run a lot of validation. I'll, I'll look at some things manually. I'll see what the problems are. I'll use the model's strengths to maybe process that further and surface some things to review. And that's now we're getting away from the, oh, you just use a building block and it's done to more, oh, if you actually want something good, it does help to play and to tinker and to build on, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to dive in briefly to, there's another change we've experienced when moving to the generative AI space from making deep learning accessible. In terms of making deep learning accessible, you can do it for the most part using all the deep learning packages are open source. Most of the tools around it that you need are as well. Part of this conversation, or a lot of it has revolved around vendor-based APIs for large language models, right? I'm wondering how you think about, which are very accessible. OpenAI is incredibly accessible. Currently, it's more accessible than getting Llama, whatever, up and running or Mistral on an endpoint somewhere. So what are your thoughts about the future of the accessibility of the open source modeling space for generative AI? I think there's there's room for all of these things. The nice thing with something like OpenAI is that you can send that query without needing any GPU yourself, without needing any deep knowledge of how to set up environments, and you can get back a response that's fantastically good. But it's also because this is a box that takes in text and spits out text. It's a it's this like language model entity thing. It's not the only one of those in town, right? So you can also use Together or AnyScale or any of these other providers who then have a whole collection of models available mm. that in many cases, mirror the OpenAI API exactly. So like for the YouTube one, I used Mixtral, right? Which is an open source or open weights model, at least, that you can use through a number of these these companies for dirt cheap. So you can prototype with one then test on another. And then you can also run that model yourself. It needs a bit more hardware for a larger model, but it's doable. And I think, yeah, if you've been following the open space and even some of the work like we're doing is it's getting easier and easier to take these large models and shrink them down and train them on a computer that you could reasonably have in your house. So it's very exciting to see that direction continue to grow. Like I, I am very glad when I don't have to rely on some third-party API. But for me, for the getting started, that's still the direction I point people first because they can always switch over later to using an open source model. They can figure out the fine-tuning thing and all the other tricks that one can do. But it's nice to have a starting point that doesn't require anything other than an internet connection. Absolutely. And to be clear, this isn't only for tinkerers. A lot of people who have LLM apps in production that I know, and I presume the, the stories you've encountered are, are similar in your own work and others, they'll start with something like a vendor-based API and then eventually fine-tune an open source model on a lot of the conversations with, with the vendor-based API. Yeah, or iron out the kinks and start to figure out what they actually needed. And yeah. then they haven't wasted time fine-tuning a model that's not actually the task their users are excited about. Yeah, exactly. so it is, it's I think it's a nice, it's a nice flow. You get access to really advanced models for really cheap for prototyping, or you can go the hardcore have fun tinkering route. Yeah. I think that whole spectrum is I think everything from like models that everyone trains individually is exciting, all the way up to just as a general infrastructure that everyone has access to, like electricity, we can all just access 
a nice big multimodal smart model that can take in whatever data we throw at it and do exactly what we tell it. Yeah. So now I'm wondering, I feel like there's some sort of shift in us needing to focus more on on user experience and the application layer and not necessarily, we don't necessarily need to train models in the way that we used to, or at least train the base models essentially. And as the space evolves, um, I mean, the extreme version of the question is, are we all going to become UX designers and end app builders? Or how do you see the importance of this part of the process evolving? Maybe it's helpful to think about computing it more generally as, a, as an example, right? There's people who code really hardcore kernel programming, but they're not many because we have really good, reliable Linux and Windows and Mac operating systems that most of us can just use. Yeah. Then you have a lot of people who can automate. They do little spreadsheet macros or a bit of Python code here and there to glue something together. Then you have a lot of people who use a drag and drop website builder to make something pretty. Then you have a lot of people that just interact with computers. And I think we'll get the same thing with AI. I don't think there'll be a future where nobody's training foundation models. But I also cool. don't think many people need to do that. And I don't think it's helpful to, for example, we've been trying to think, do we do a fast AI course building transformers from scratch? Maybe. That's interesting, but I, I also think the funnel will be there's a few people doing that, and that's great, and they should continue. We, we need that layer. But then above that, there should be people making the building blocks easier and, and building that infrastructure. And then above that, there should be lots of people, yeah, like you say, being effectively UI designers, or at least like the creative task designers, figuring out what building blocks they, that you can glue together. Slowly, that consolidates down into something more concrete. And then lots more people just playing with those things as users. And because of how easy, especially those upper layers are, it's nice that there's some permeability there. It's not, oh, you're a computer user, but if you ever want to do any programming, you have to learn assembly language. But there's very there's spreadsheets that have automation and drag and drop low code things that help you break that barrier. And I think here's the same, like you're a user, but you can also ask the thing to do new things. And, and suddenly you've transitioned into a tear down. You're a designer now of experiences. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. So... I'm just wondering whether in deep learning that as far as I know, there's not a huge no-code space yet, right? I don't know. For a number of years, you've been able to drag a folder of images and get a, a bespoke classifier back or drag a... There's been this promise of like auto-train, auto-ML. Mm. Yeah, the issue has been that it's until quite recently been a very niche field of very technical people. So there hasn't been much demand for that. And... It's also been, in practice, tricky enough that even if you did think you could do an, a low-code tool, you might hit some hiccup that required having the expert in any way. Yeah, so it's been there, but I think you're right. It's, that hasn't been the, the main way people interacted with the deep learning part. Yeah. yeah. But I think with the advent of tools such as ChatGPT and the ability to have conversational in interfaces can, can change that completely. I'm just wondering, maybe I'm looking slightly the wrong direction, though, if what we're looking for is like, blogger for AI or WordPress or Squarespace or Optimizely, actually, I think is a really nice example of pre-Optimizely doing A-B tests. You needed a whole bunch of technical people on board to do that, including statisticians, back-end dudes, front-end dudes, and Optimizely made a really nice product where you could run online experiments and get the results without being technical, right? So are these some of the types of things we want to see in the end? Yeah, definitely. One one space that excites me at the moment, I don't know if you know Replicate. They're like yeah. effectively a, a marketplace or an app store of building blocks, right? Everything that's on there, you can interact with and test out in the web. 
but you can also have that running as a Docker image in minutes or call as an API and pay fractions of a cent per inference step. And so stuff like that, stuff like hugging faces effectively that, although it's also lots of other things, so it's a bit intimidating. But yeah, having these big like collections of things and then, yeah, maybe what you're describing is something even above that that just lets you glue them together really easily. But yeah. it feels like even that glue between getting one of these coding models to to do the gluing for you and make the pain less that way and with nice off-the-shelf things that you can just hit up the API from whatever your website is, feels like we're getting close to that being, yeah, at least the rough pieces are there. I really love that you mentioned Replicate. I'll include a link in the show notes that I've just included in the chat for several reasons. One, I do think it makes immediate accessibility of using models with no code. Like it, it democratizes that entirely. Sorry to use a bunch of buzzwords there, but I think we got the sense. The other thing though, it actually dovetails very, it brings us full circle to one of the examples I gave was stable video diffusion of requiring, first I need to access GPUs and all of that, then figuring out my dependencies. And it takes, there's a lot to un, un, quote unquote unpack there, so to speak. But when stable video diffusion came out, immediately on Replicate, and Stability AI even linked to it. They're like, if you want to play around with it, do this. But they allowed me to upload photos and generate videos from them immediately just to get a sense without building it everything myself, how to how to get these things up, up and running. And it was incredibly useful in order to get a sense of how these things work. I'm glad you mentioned Hugging Face because I think it'd be great if we could jump into kind of a final demo in, in a second of how to think about these types of applications. I have one question before that, though, from someone really deep in the space. I'm just wondering if you have any advice for, let's say, data scientists, machine learning engineers who haven't really broken into generative AI yet. What's the skill set and tool kit you'd encourage them to work with the most and develop? I think if you're coming from those backgrounds, one of the strengths you'll have is already having a strong emphasis on like evaluation and like figuring out how well something's doing. I think that's a huge advantage to be bringing in. And so if you're coming into like, oh, I'm coming into this generative space, yeah, <laughs> and you're pretty well set because you can start to play with these tools, right? You can do the thing that we tell anyone who's beginning, go to Replicate, go to Hugging Face, try run some of these things, play with the demos. But then you can also start to think, oh, how do I ch check if this is good enough? How do I compare one versus the other when I get past the like vibes of, oh, this image looks nicer than that one? Can I do that automated? Can I look at a bunch of things? Can I use another piece as a scoring? Yeah, so I think those data science minds, data science slash deep learning mindsets of measuring and quantifying how well things do would carry over very nicely. But apart from that, the advice would be the same as for anyone is like, just try this stuff out, go play with a lot of the tools. And then you start to get a familiarity, like a toolbox of, like, oh, I've used this thing before to remove backgrounds. I, I know that's a task I can do now. And then you just start stocking that quiver. And then when you need to build something, you've got all those pieces there. And Cass, just on a personal level, what tools you've found most useful and kind of ones that you've had to adopt? Yeah, I guess a lot of my day-to-day -day usage of these tools myself is either, yeah, it's usually code editing would be the dominant use case for sure. But I also use it for a lot of the stuff around that, right? Oh, how do I see which Docker containers are using a lot of space on my drive again? And then what's the command to stop it? Oh, there's an error. Ah, oh, you've got to restart the daemon. For... All of these like random debugging questions that I would historically have to search through a bunch of places for, I quite enjoy. I do a lot of like random image editing for 
my own entertainment and making really niche means for my family. So a lot of the image models that I used to work on are still very much go-to. I really enjoy going to Playground or Dali and generating some funny images and editing them and kitbashing them together. Yeah, the language models I use in my day-to-day -day a lot for one-off like labeling tasks. So it's meta, but just this week, for example, oh, I want to make it a training data set based on someone else's data set for testing some fine-tuning stuff we're working on. And I'd like to get a feel for that data set quickly and also make a smaller version. So I can take a language model that's running on my server. I can feed it an example from that data set surrounded by like, hey, you're evaluating this as whether or not it's useful according to these criteria. Boom, boom, boom. It would be a bad sample if it has these features. Dum, dum, dum. Here's the sample. Okay, what's your evaluation? And I can use that to score all of the data, like a million, million pieces of data. Then I can look at the bottom 100 and the top 100 and I can decide, okay, cool. I, maybe I'll keep the top 10,000 samples. So for that kind of like, that's data processing, but it's still using that box. And that's a task that would historically have been really painful <laughs> to say, okay, I need to review this data and check what the bad samples are. Maybe you're spending a lot of time, whereas now that's, yeah, just creating a bespoke tool for this one-off thing. Yeah, so that's, I'd say a lot of my usage is making that kind of single-use tool. Yeah, that's really interesting. We've mentioned it enough times that I'd like, your, I'd like you to evaluate Gen AI evaluation for me. I think we can probably all agree, but feel free to push back here that in, there's been a lot of movement on a lot of fronts in the space, but evaluation is maybe something we don't really have a handle on. I'll give current state of evaluation five out of 10. That's my evaluation of, of evaluation. I haven't really told you what, what the scale means, but yeah, how do you feel we are with respect to LLM evaluation in particular now, not even to mention text to image or text to video stuff. And how do you think about ways we can improve that? I think it's pretty well acknowledged that this is a space we need to improve, right? If you look at the existing benchmarks, like you actually read the samples from a lot of them, you'll see that there's some absolute nonsense in there. And a lot of the benchmarks have been around for long enough that it's unclear whether they're included in the training data, especially for these closed models. So the comparisons might not always be apples to apples. And you read the samples and you're like, is this actually the kinds of tasks I need evaluation on for my use case? Yeah. Not always the case at all. So yeah, I'm with you that it's definitely a low score and needs to improve. I think one of the directions I would like to see that is just a move away from trying to have some sort of global measure that's, oh, I just look at the MMLU score and then that determines everything about the model. And what's nice is that if you have to, if you have to download a 200 gigabyte file and fiddle with all these things just to try it out, then maybe, yeah, you do just go buy some heuristic from someone who's tried them all. Mm. But because now it's so easy to just hit up 10 different models on together or to try out generating images of five different image generators on Replicate, use up $20 of credits, I feel like it's more that people should be doing their own evaluations for the kinds of things they actually care about. They should be thinking like, oh, this is a task I'm wanting to do. Can I hand label 20 samples? Can I <laughs> manually review some predictions from different models and get a feel for how well they're doing and try and make that feel as, as quantifiable as possible? Okay, it's getting 17 out of 50 of these right. This one's getting 45 out of 50. Mm. Build your own evaluations. So I don't know what that looks like. I don't know if that's, I think to be honest, the main answer is people just actually looking at the data a little bit more. <laughs> but yeah, that definitely seems like a direction that would be worth pursuing as a as an industry versus all relying on some like single leaderboard metric that's flawed in all of these ways. Absolutely. And to dive into that a bit deeper, 
we already have tools like RLHF and this type of stuff. Are there other ways to think about getting human feedback? If you have a product, then definitely. You should be like you mentioned A-B testing. You can take advantage of the fact that if you have any signal at all in your interface, you have people liking some things and disliking others. You have people quitting the rage quitting your website if you respond in a certain way. So there's definitely, if you actually have a product, a lot more rich signals that are not like just paying some low-paid data labeler to to evaluate your big language model outputs. Yeah, so I think that's one way to do it that's really good. And then the other way to do it to get human feedback is to be the human and <laughs> do the feedback yeah. yourself. I think that's really valuable. Absolutely. Great. So I think we should wrap up soon, but I'd love to jump into, I think you wanted to show us some things on Hugging Face and how to even think about the space of moving through applications or? Yeah, I guess we we don't have to do that. Maybe what I'll do is, because I have the tab open from when we were talking about it. So this is the replicate we were talking about. Oh, yeah. Um, this is a nice one to close on because if you're like, oh, what kinds of tasks quickly, can that I actually John do? Lacoon as the Hulk? <laughs> yeah, so this is identity-preserving generation. You feed in an image and a text prompt and you can get something else out. That's Yeah, so that's an example of one type of task. I guess for people who don't know the interface, this is you'll see how to run the code or how to try it out on the website. Um, mm. But what I wanted to show was if you scroll down this page, and you'll see a similar thing if you look at trending spaces on Hugging Face or trending models, you start to realize the kinds of tasks one can do. Oh, there are models that can take in a corrupted image and produce a restored image. This is great. Maybe I can build a nice little thing for my grandma to go through her photo albums. I need another model that can like crop out the relevant bits, and then I restore them, and then I make a nice picture frame. Oh, there are models that take in an image and produce a caption. What can I do with that? Oh, there are models that take in a low quality image and produce a high quality image. What can I do with that? So it's quite fun to just come and browse, see what people are doing, see what popular models are. And then, yeah, that's like, I think if you go to Hugging Face, Trending Spaces, or see what the like models of the week are, you'll see something similar. Lots and lots of different tasks that people are playing with. And that's a good way to start building that inspiration to say, oh, hey, I didn't know that you could put in text and an audio of me humming and I could get an orchestral sound back out. But apparently everyone's excited about Facebook's music gen model that can do that. And you start to unlock these little boxes in your brain that say, oh, that's a task I can do now. Or at least hypothetically. Yeah. I, I love that. And I just had a whole bunch of generative ideas as you were scrolling through that page and, and talking. <laughs> but also this brings us back to the problem, the challenge of public awareness, right? That just getting out there, spreading the word that all of these things are, are possible um, is one of the well, most I mean, important things we can do. Yeah, maybe that's how we end. Just telling, if you're listening, go try this. Yeah. Even if you're just taking an existing thing and putting in a new wrapper around it, that's one way that this word gets out is to say, hey, I discovered this week, I can take all my old blog posts and I can turn them into funny pictures. Yeah. Go build something like that. And if you do, we'd lo I'd love to see what people do. I, I really love hearing that kind of experiment. And then the more people who do that, everyone else who sees this says, huh, that's the thing I can do. And it has this little knock-on effect. Exactly. So I'll link to that replicate page in the show notes as as well but please do if you see things that you're interested in doing let us know twitter's probably the best place i'm hugo bound the podcast is vanishing data and jono is at jono whitaker i'll include the link in the show notes but it's j-o-h-n-o-w-h-i-t-a-k-e-r there we go um i think that's a lovely note to end on i do have one more secondary note to end on which we haven't talked about 
but I wouldn't be doing you justice if I didn't mention this. You're writing a book currently. Maybe you can just tell us a, a bit about it to get, because I'm excited about it. I think everyone should be excited about it. So, Sure. So yeah, I love making courses and I love teaching people that you can do these things. The book is a wonderful collaboration with three friends from Hugging Face. It spun out of, I think, initially the Stable Diffusion course that I did with them. I should say my co-authors are doing a lot of the work at the moment. I'm juggling other things, and I'm really deeply appreciative of that. But we've all contributed our own little inputs to the book. The book is hands-on generative modeling, covers a bit of language modeling, a bit of diffusion models, a bit of everything. Yeah, and I think it's a really great reference for people who are excited about how these things work under the hood, but from a very practical, what is this? How do I use it? How is it made? Perspective as opposed to a very theoretical bottom-up approach. Yeah, I think it's an early release now. You can find it on O'Reilly. But yeah, thanks for reminding me about that, actually. Absolutely. So it's a fun project and amazing um, people to be working with. I'm sure. And I'll link to that in the show notes uh, as well. But yeah, I love that as a call to action. Have a play around and ideally let us know what you come up with. It'd be really exciting to see in, in, any projects that you develop out, out of this. Um, look, I'd like to thank everyone for, for joining where, wherever you are, whether it's late on Friday or early on a Saturday. What a time to be getting into such a conversation um, most of all, I'd love to thank you, Jono, for your time and expertise. It's always a pleasure to chat. And this was just wonderful as, as always. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter. At Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.